Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? We appeal to your grace, this same grace. Great King Jesus, living word of God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us wherever we are right now as we worship you together in oneness of mind and spirit. Open to us your word and open our hearts to you that we might know you more deeply. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this Lent, we're focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you know anything about Christianity, you think about what's the symbol of Christianity, probably a cross comes to your mind. But the reality is we don't oftentimes think about the meaning of the cross. We're going a little bit deeper this Lent. I told you last week that a woman on an airplane said, I love Jesus, but the cross, you know, it's just kind of gory, it's violent, almost seems abusive to me, so I don't have much room for it. It seems like more and more modern people are pulling back from the cross, but not the Apostle Paul. Remember, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, the the word of the cross is the power of God. So we really want to understand it. We really want to embrace the fullness of the cross. And to do that, we get to look at this great image. It's called the Wales Window of Alabama. It's a stained glass window. It's a beautiful stained glass window. It was given by the people of Wales to 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, following a racially motivated bombing that tragically killed four African-American girls in 1963. Last week, we focused in on the face. We saw the black face of the figure on the cross, not to suggest that Jesus was an African-American, but to suggest that God identifies with those who are wounded. And in 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, it was African-Americans who were wounded. This week, we're going to look at a different part of the window. Down here, the inscription, it says, you do it to me. You do it to me. And we wondered a little bit last week about what that might have meant to the bombers, you know, picturing them walking by the church in the evening and seeing that come through the glass. And it wouldn't be good news to them. It would be a word of indictment. They were hiding in plain sight, getting away with their crimes. But Jesus says, you do it to me. As if to say, what you did was wrong. Your racism is wrong. Your destruction is wrong. Your bombing, your murder, wrong, wrong, wrong. And you don't just do it to these girls. You did it to me, God would say to them. God, the one who gives the girls life. God, the one who gives the bombers life. And you go, "Uh uh-oh. The question, if you're one of those bombers reading that at this point is, what is God now going to do to me? Well, the possibility is actually in the wider window. It's above the words. It's the symbol of the cross. And the answer is perhaps forgiveness, Because the word of the cross has the power of forgiveness. Well, today I want to talk about forgiveness with you. I want to read with you a text written by a man uh, who is wrestling with uh, the power of forgiveness. It's a text that's historically associated with this time of year uh, with Lent. And it's uh, familiar to many of us. It's Psalm 51. So I don't, I don't know, pull out a Bible if, you're, if you've got one available to you, or maybe navigate on your phone or computer to Psalm 51. I'm going to read the New Revised Standard Version. You might like to read a different translation, kind of get a different sense of it. Uh, when I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, even at home, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're hearing God's holy word. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. and Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. Sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. I wonder if as I read that, you noticed the echo of this window in verse four. To God, David, the psalmist says, against you, and you alone have I sinned. It's really a cry for forgiveness, isn't it? Some have suggested that this whole psalm fits in the middle of one verse in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Here we get the history of David. And in this one verse, the first part of the verse says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then the second part of the verse says, now the, Nathan the prophet says to him, now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And we might imagine that this psalm fits right in between those two parts of the verse. I've sinned against the Lord, says David. Now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die, says Nathan. And here in that space, this cry for forgiveness. Here David on his knees before his God anticipates the cross. 1,000 years early, he looks forward to the cross. And he offers us three experiences that we might have at the foot of the cross ourselves. Let's share these together. The first is this. At the foot of the cross, David experiences a forgiving God. A forgiving God. Notice this. Forgiveness first, then repentance. Grace first, then life change. David begins with who God is. It's really an expression of theology. And you see this in the first three great words that David uses here, words for God in verse one, mercy, steadfast love, and abundant mercy. 
You might have different translations of these, but these are the three great Hebrew words for God and his forgiveness. Mercy, steadfast love, abundant mercy. They refer each in turn to a gift that can't be claimed ourselves. Secondly, help for the helpless. And thirdly, the bond, the unique and unconditional bond that a mother has for her child. It's actually a derivative of the word for the womb, which is kind of an interesting expression for God's abundant mercy. Now, the artist, John Petz, who made this glass, he has, in a way, put Jesus in prison with these words when uh, he adds, you do it to me. And the reason I say that is because John Petz has told us that he got the words from the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. I read these to you last week. But in this parable, Jesus is saying that God identifies with the sick, with the naked, with the hungry, uh, with the poor. And in that, he says, even with the prisoner. So people say, well, when did we ever see you? And, and, and the king says, you saw me when you visited me in prison. I was in prison and you visited me. Meant to be words of assurance. But behind those words, there's this truth that God identifies with those who are vulnerable, in need, wounded, even with the prisoners, those who are guilty. I was in prison and you visited me. This is really a a surprising thing to say to a person of faith. Where would we expect to find God? We'd expect to find him in heaven. We'd expect to find him, I don't know, in church. We'd expect to find him on some cosmic throne. And no, here Jesus says, you'd find me in prison. You'd find me between two thieves. You'd find me on the cross of Calvary, a crucified Messiah. This is a forgiving God. So why would God do this? Why would the Son of God do this? Well, this was the mission. This is the reason that the Son of God took on human flesh. Jesus himself says, I've come not to call the righteous, but to, come to call sinners. This is good news for me. At the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So forgiving God, that's what Jesus has come to do. And we're reading this book together, some of us, this Lent uh, by Fleming Rutledge called The Crucifixion, and I recommend it to you. In this book, she reflects a little bit on Psalm 51, and she says this, this psalm exemplifies the way that a sense of sin arises not out of browbeaten guilt, but from a yearning for God and his goodness. God, she writes, is moving upon a person's heart before the person even realizes what is happening. God's moving on our heart, his goodness. It's not a, it's not a shame. God is not shaming us, trying to wake us up. He's actually gracing us to wake us up. And this seems to be what's happening uh, to David with these three great words for God's forgiveness. Karl Barth, the great theologian in the last century, uh, preached to inmates in the prison, little prison in his hometown of Basel in Switzerland. And these are people who didn't need to hear from Bart, you know, you're guilty, you've done wrong, because the town has already judged them, they know that. And so Bart came with a word of grace, just like David. He preached to them on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. And to drive that message of grace home, he, he had a sermon illustration. He, he, he spoke about the, um, this legend 
of the Horsemen and Lake Constance. And I think probably those prisoners were all familiar with this legend. We aren't, but it's an old story about a, a rider riding on horseback through a driving snowy evening. And he's trying to find a little village on the edge of a lake. And he presses on over rocks and across fields and wide open plains. And he finally makes it to this village. And the townspeople say, well, how did you get here? And he says, I came that way. And they said, oh my gosh. And they all turn ashen. You came to us riding across the lake, they said. And when he heard this news that, that he'd trampled across this newly frozen lake and survived, he fell to his knees, crushed at the risk, the dangers that he had just come through. And Bart says, this is pretty much our situation when we hear about God's grace, is we realize once we're secure, once we're safe, then and only then we dare to look back at the crisis that we have just survived. These are Bart's words. He says, when we hear this word, grace, we involuntarily look back do we not? Asking ourselves, where have I been? Over an abyss, in mortal danger. What did I do? The most foolish thing I ever attempted. What happened? I was doomed and miraculously escaped. And now I am safe. He says, do you ask, he's asking the prisoners, do we really live in such danger? Yes. He answers, we live on the brink of death, but we have been saved. Look at our Savior, at our salvation. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know for whose sake he is hanging there? For our sake, because of sin, sharing our captivity, burdened with our suffering. He nails our life to the cross. This is how God had to deal with us. From this darkness, he has saved us. He who is not shattered after hearing this news may not have yet grasped the word of God by grace you have been saved. It's a beautiful picture of a, an experience of forgiveness. It's really where this begins. And the good news is, friends, the work of forgiveness has been done for us already. Have you ever thought about that? When were you forgiven? The work of forgiveness was done before you asked for forgiveness, before you sinned, before you were born. The work of forgiveness was done way long ago when God's son, only son, gave his life on the cross for me and for you. The word that probably matters more than these words over the cross is the word that Jesus Christ himself spoke when he said, it is finished. It's done. My work is done. And it's an appreciation of this that moves David. That's why he begins where he begins with these three great words of God's grace. He's already in the arms of a forgiving God. That's the first point. But only from this place of security can he now have the second experience? And it's this. At the foot of the cross, David experiences a sinner's confession. Notice, immediately after these three great words for God, he has three tragic words for his own actions. We see it in verse 1b and 2. Three, three words that answer God's grace. Transgression, transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Three ways of talking about what David has done. And you may remember the story, kids. David was king over Israel and he hurt a woman and then he hurt a man. He actually killed a man and then he lied to the whole nation. Horrible things. And he uses three words to describe all of this pain he's created. 
Three words that mean alternatively crossing a boundary, transgression, deviating from a norm, iniquity, falling short of an expectation, sin. David's saying, I have sinned. He's honest about that. But here's what's interesting. He's honest about more than that. If you, if you read on to verse five, you'll see he's not just saying I've sinned, he's also saying I am a sinner. The difference between an action and a condition. Look at verse five. Indeed, he says, I was born guilty. A sinner when my mother conceived me. Before I did anything, I already had the condition. I was born a sinner. Now, he's not blaming his mother. He's not shifting blame away from anybody else. He's going to own his own moral failure. But what he's doing is helping us understand that we are born into a wider context. And he's recalling for himself the biblical arc, the story of the Bible. And we've talked about this before. There are four great movements to the story of the Bible. Creation, all is good. Fall, all is broken and distorted by sin. Redemption, God is acting to overcome the brokenness of the world. And then completion, one day redemption will be fulfilled. And David knows where he lives. And inside that arc, he's saying, I am broken. My life is distorted, even the best of my life, by my brokenness. It's a condition. He's saying something similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, when Paul says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Do you know that? You have that experience? I know what's good. Why don't I end up doing it more often? Well, the answer is we're infected by a virus, and the virus is called sin. And it's universal, it's systemic, and it's terminal. This is what happens when we pull away from the God who gives us life. Well, Paul is, uh, David, excuse me, is honest about that, uh, that he has this disease, it's congenital, it's like a genetic disease, it's sort of, we could say, passed in utero into his being, or it's like a personality disorder that environmentally is forged in infancy through the distress of dysfunctional family. But we all have it, don't we? A doctor was saying once to her patient, you know, I've got very bad news for you. You don't have much to live. And the patient was shocked. She says, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, 10. He said, 10, 10, 10 what? She said, nine, nine, nine what? Years, months, days, what do you mean? She says, eight, seven, six, Five, four. Well, I don't think it's that bad for us, but it is serious. And David acknowledges the seriousness of his sin. Notice this in the whale's window, it kind of points to this idea of sin as a condition, where the words say, You do it to me. Did you notice they don't say, You did it to me? You did it to me would be a, an action. You do it to me is more of a pattern. It's more of an ongoing reality or, or a, a condition. Now, let me ask why this matters. Why do I spend so much time on this? Because I think, for one thing, if we don't understand the cross, we don't understand ourselves. We're a mystery to ourselves. We, we oftentimes, when we think about the cross, here's, here's what I think. Why can't God can't forgive just like I forgive, Right? Why wouldn't God forgive the same way that I do? If you do something that hurts me and I say, I forgive you, it's just that easy. I would say, hey, you know, no worries. We're good. It's fine, right? No blood is shed, no violence, nobody dies. Why can't God do that same thing and be that same way? Well, when we ask that question, 
what it only reveals is that we don't really understand the nature uh, of sin. Why did God have to die? Why the cross? If there were any other way, don't you think God would choose it? It shows us how devastating our condition is. God doesn't do this just for stained glass makers or the Renaissance painters or Hallmark card. No, God does this because maybe, just maybe, this is the only way to forgive sin. Maybe this is the only way for a holy God to heal the condition of, of, of sinfulness. I've asked myself, as I've been reflecting on this cross, what does the cross say about my life? What does it say about my sin, my actions? What does it say about the condition of my life? What does it say about the condition of the world that God would have to die for me, for us? I think what it says is that sin must be judged. That God loves us so much that God will not tolerate any degree, even the smallest degree of evil or darkness in our souls or in our world. God loves us too much for that. It, it reveals that sin is violence. Sin is violence against nature, against our neighbors, against even ourselves. And it must be judged and it must be removed. And for that to happen, we must be forgiven. And so the cross. I think when we don't understand the cross, we don't understand how much we are loved. I mean, that God would do this for you and for me. The cross stands against sentimentality. Sentimentality. We, we tend to be very sentimental these days. I love the way Flannery O'Connor reacts against our sentimentality. She writes that sentimentality skips over the cross and makes, quote, an early arrival at a mock state of innocence. You see that? She's saying sentimentality, it's kind of a shortcut. It's naive. It's a form of laziness. Those who are not willing to wrestle with the darkness in their lives and in the world. It's an unwillingness to struggle with sin, an unwillingness even to see sin in ourselves. That's Flannery O'Connor's take. Uh, and I think it's true to a lot of us. We have this kind of naivete about sin. It, it shows up in our politics. It distorts our politics, both on the left and on the right. On the left, this we're naive about sin in our leaders. On the right, we're naive about sin in social structures. So we appeal to sentimentality. I think sentimentality also distorts our self-esteem. Uh, with a desire to accept ourselves and to accept one another, we run very quickly to a false sense of innocence. We presume this of ourselves and of others. We say, I'm okay, you're okay, no worries. But that view takes no account of the things that we do that are not okay, and we know it. I, I, Psalm 139 seems to be seeping into the popular culture this day, uh, which is wonderful. You know, the psalmist David again says in Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true for all people, and I love that. But we need to hold that intention with Psalm 51. Uh, here David affirms, you know what? I was born into guilt. Uh, I am a sinner. And not everything that I do is loved by God. God doesn't love my selfishness. God doesn't love my lust. God doesn't love my racism. 
God doesn't love my addictions. God doesn't love my depression. God doesn't love the hairline fractures in my back. And, and I think our, our, this false innocence is not necessary for real self-esteem. In fact, this idea that maybe we have to hide something to be loved by people, to be loved by God, actually depresses self-esteem. David's after something entirely different. He's after something authentic. Thou desires truth in the inward being, he says. And so he brings this all out into the open, this confession. He's coming before a God who loves every part of who he is. Not what he does, but who he is. And so this false sense of innocence just falls away. Real authenticity in a sinner's confession. And then this authenticity opens David to a third invitation. Finally, we learn at the foot of the cross, David experiences a heart of joy. Listen to David now. Verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. In verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In verse 15, he says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth and my mouth will declare your praise. Joy. A forgiving God evoked a prayer of confession and that confession released an experience of forgiveness that is carrying David now to the heights of joy. I noticed something about this window between last Sunday's message and this Sunday's. Uh, remember I told you that this window was shining on those who were bombers and, and they'd be reading this. And I realized they probably have difficulty reading it because it'd be backwards to them, right? The window is not flipped around towards the outside for the words to be read outside the church. The window is actually facing inside. It's only inside the church that we read these words. Why would we want words like this facing us, those who worship God? The reason for that is joy. These words call us to joy. These words remind us that even though the Son of God gave his life for us voluntarily, it was our sin who put him there. Like uh, we read in John Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? that I should gain, he writes, an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Ah, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Those words are flipped around because this congregation, its joy derives from knowing that our sin holds him there and that he's faithful to the last drop in order that we might be and have been forgiven. You are forgiven. In the old allegory written by John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress, one of the climaxes of that great story is a moment when the main character, whose name is Christian, trudges up this hill, gets to the top. He's got this huge burden, this big pack on his shoulders. It's called his burden. And as he gets to the top of the hill, he sees the cross and he stands before the cross. And as the shadow of the cross passes over him, the straps on his pack are released and the burden falls off and it rolls down the hill and it rolls into an empty tomb. And all of a sudden, angels appear, three angels, and one of them looks at him and says, you are forgiven. And then in the old English, Bunyan says, the springs that were in his head, sent the waters 
down his cheeks. Joy. You're forgiven. All those words are so precious to those who hear them. You know, the message today is so simple. I could just say it in three words. You are forgiven. And I can't help but believe with the epidemic and strange way that we're doing church that there's someone today watching us who needs to hear those words so desperately. And maybe you're here just for that reason, so that you can know that God is saying to you in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. That's the truth, and that's the good news of the gospel, and that's the message of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ holds power, the power of forgiveness. And we're not going to find that anywhere else. It is not anywhere else but at the cross. I want to say, finally, if, if you've never experienced this forgiveness, I want to invite you to come to what David calls God's abundant mercy. Come with a confession of your own sin. God can take it. He's already died for you on the cross. But, but if you don't come and confess your sin, this death is worth as little to you as an uncashed check that sits in your wallet until it dissolves. We've got to receive this gift and believe it and accept it and live as though it were our truth. I want to invite you to come today to see the shadow of the cross passing over your life, over your past, all of it, everything you've done, over your present, who you are, even right now, and over your future, whatever you would do in the future. This is the gift of forgiveness offered us in the cross. This is what it means to become a Christian, by the way, just to open yourself up to this gift and to say, yes, I receive it. To come to the cross of Jesus Christ and to open ourselves up to the joy of salvation, as David refers to it. So I want to invite you today to make that decision. And if you make that decision today or if you made it in recent weeks, would you do me a favor and send me an email? I would love to know about it and to help you grow as a Christian. Remember, Jesus says, if you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Don't need a fancy email. Just say, George, I'm coming to faith in Jesus Christ and I've made this decision. Now, if you're already a Christian, if you've already understood that your sins are forgiven, but perhaps you felt your joy diminish in recent days, maybe just grow dim. To you, I believe God is saying this morning, would you come again to my cross? Would you come and kneel at the foot of the cross? And what a wonderful opportunity Lent is for us to do just that. God says to you, bring your weariness, bring your broken bones, kneel here with me at Lent. Let me put a new and a right spirit in you. That's David's invitation. Three experiences of a forgiving God, of a sinner's confession, and of a heart of joy an invitation to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Gracious God, give us the power to comprehend your love, to know its breadth and length and height and depth, to comprehend it and to be encompassed by it, to be, to be filled with all the fullness of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us the freedom and the power to believe that we are forgiven, that our sin will not get the last word, that we are not defined by our past without you, but we shall be defined 
by the cross and a future in which you are our strength. You are our righteousness. You are our life. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll move us out of our church and into our neighborhoods. Perhaps that's exactly what you're doing already, even now. Move us into our neighborhoods, among our neighbors, as people ready to bless, as people full of forgiveness, eager to give and eager to receive. In Christ's name we pray, amen.